Well, <clears throat> I hope you enjoyed this series so far. My name is Jim. I'm one of the pastors here at Journey. As Brian told you, we are uh, on a journey through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we've been looking at it and um, from a different perspective that I, I've really enjoyed. Growing up, this was always my favorite gospel, and I think uh, the reason is, uh, and some of you ha- have probably seen this as we've walked through the story, there's this confrontational side to, to the gospel of Mark, and it's because of who the author is, and we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but it, it's a la- it shows a different side of Jesus and a different side of his story that we, you don't get in the other gospels. There's a reason we have four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because it shows the same story from different perspectives and different angles. And that's what we're kind of talking about this morning. <clears throat> um, we're going to start off uh, this way. We all ha- kind of have something in common, and uh, my guess is uh, you have similar stories like this, but we all have these, these stories that um, th- they're from our past, and we look back now and we laugh at them, and sometimes we reminisce and we talk about them, but, but when they happened, they were really embarrassing. They were so embarrassing that it just kind of left us feeling well, really just totally embarrassed. I have one of those stories, and uh, because I'm up here, I get to share stories about me, which is always fun for you. Um, <clears throat> just a few years ago, some of you were probably even here for this, this uh, story. A few years ago, uh, I was up here actually on this very same stage speaking, uh, and something happened. As a matter of fact, uh, I've shared with you guys before that I've had this like crippling fear of public speaking, and every once in a while, it kind of creeps back up. I-, I tend to do better now, but every once in a while, it gets the better of me. Well, this Sunday morning in particular, it got the better of me. It started off with a, a dry throat and <clears throat> uh, some coughing. Uh, before I got on stage, and then I started speaking, and it, it gradually built through the message until it finally got the better of me, and I turned around to cough, and what, what started as a cough turned into a coughing fit, which then turned into me gagging so loudly, it was almost like vomiting on stage. It was quite visceral, quite disgusting. I remember, uh, actually, it was right about here. I was trying to hide behind the TV uh, to compose myself and turned around, and you could see some people laughing, some people in horror of what's about to come next. Um, I can look back on that now and laugh. I will tell you, in that moment, it was mortifying. But we all have stories like that. We also all have stories uh, um, that we don't like talking about. Things in our past that, that we, we don't want to ever uh, talk about. We don't, we don't bring them up. We don't laugh about them because we never talk about them because they are uh, that hard for us. They're, they're somewhat shameful. As a matter of fact, there are moments in our life that we wish we could all come back to and we could unlive and we can redo. <clears throat> and those stories aren't always that funny. In the Gospel of Mark, Simon Peter has a very similar story, a very similar time in his life where I'm sure there were other things in his life he would say, yeah, you know, that was funny. We can, you know, goof about that now. All the disciples are harassing him, giving him a hard time. But there's, there's one in particular where I'm sure he looked back and he thought, if I could just unlive, if I could just redo that moment. And the reason he includes it in his gospel, and this is really interesting because this is Peter's gospel. Why would, this is what kind of allows me to believe in the gospels, that they are real and and true accounts of the life of Jesus. Because why would somebody who's authoring this include this kind of story about them? I mean, if I'm writing an autobiography, I'm leaving that story out, right? Like, I'm going to talk about the good times and and the good results, not about the time I vomited on stage out, out of stage fright. Like, no. Why would we include that? Why would Peter include that? Because it actually happened. And more than that, because he wants you to know and he wants me to know that in those moments where we're feeling a little bit of shame, in those moments where we're feeling pain, in those moments where those stories where we wish we could go back and completely unlive and redo that, there is a place we can take the shame, there's a place we can take the pain, and it's safe. 
There's a place where you could go with that story, with, with that baggage, with that hurt, with that shame, and you could leave it, and it's safe. And he knows that because he experienced that for himself. You see, this reminds us uh, of, uh, of things we don't want to be reminded of. And it's almost like for a moment, Peter's reminding us, your past might remind you, but your past does not have to define you. If you're carrying something shameful, if you're carrying something hurtful, my honest remark today is I'm really glad you're here. We're, we're getting into, into the story of Jesus, and, and to be completely honest, it, it's going to be a little hard. But last week, I, I left, and if you were here, you probably felt the way. If you were watching the line, you probably felt the way. Man, that was a little, a little bit of a downer. I've got bad news for you. It's a little bit of a downer this week. When you're walking through the life of Jesus, before it gets good, it gets really, really hard. We're talking about the life of Jesus. I've told you before that this is the story that should have died in Nero's Rome, but it didn't. It's the story of Jesus of Nazareth, as told to us by one of his most famous apostles, Simon Peter. He, he uh, dictated this to, and it was edited by a man named John Mark, his traveling companion. And, and it comes to us as the gospel of Mark. But don't make no mistake, this is Peter's story. This is written from Peter's perspective. This is Peter's uh, uh, account of his life experience with Jesus. What's amazing about this, and we've said this before, is that when you hear us read through this, when you hear me read through the portions of scriptures we're going to read through today, don't hear me reading the Bible because Mark wasn't writing the Bible. The Bible wasn't around yet. Mark was documenting the life experience of this man, Peter, with this teacher, this rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. He was documenting his life. So, so when we're reading through the scriptures, th this stuff that we're reading about wasn't learned from scripture somewhere else. This was Peter's actual experience with this man, Jesus, with his life and, and all that it encompassed. According to Peter, Jesus, time and time again, he would come back to this same message. He had this theme every time he taught. And every time Jesus taught this, he would come back to this theme. And, and we've covered this from day one. You can be thankful that this is the conclusion of this series because you'll hear something new. But my hope is that after six weeks of this, you've got it. And you could probably repeat it with me. So we're going to say it together this morning, right? Here, what was the theme of Jesus' message? The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near, which means you are never far. The whole earth has waited for this moment, for this time. Everything was building to this point. And Jesus said, it's here. The time is here. The kingdom of God has come near because the king sent his son and his son is in town. And Peter said, the only thing we have to do is to repent and to believe the good news. And what's the good news? The good news that, that most of us think about is, is, well, Jesus died and he came and he lived and he died and he came back to life. That way I could go to heaven with him. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Peter said, no, no, that, that, that hasn't happened yet. The good news, the good news that Jesus came to bring was the good news about God. Jesus actually came to reveal the Father to us. He said, I want you to know what God is like so that you can trust him and so that you would see what he's willing to do for you. Jesus came to us so that we could know what God was like. And this was difficult for them to grasp. This was difficult for first century people to grasp because they had an image of, of gods and they had an image of what, of what gods would be like and how gods would act and how gods would, would respond. And Jesus said, yeah, but this isn't like my God. As a matter of fact, he invited us to call his God, our God, Father. And Jesus said, God is like me. Peter said, God is like Jesus. Jesus actually says later that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Do you want to know what God's like? 
Look at me. And Peter said, here's why I'm including all this, because I want you to know what God was like. I want you to know that the grace and the mercy that I received was the grace and the mercy of God. So previously, on You're Not Far, this, we're in part six now, previously on You're Not Far, Jesus and his disciples, we talked about their journey down to Jerusalem. They started up here at Caesarea Philippi, and <clears throat> they made their way down to Jerusalem through Capernaum, through the area of Galilee. They came down through the area of Judea and Jericho, down into Jerusalem, and they've been there for about a week. And through this week, Jesus has been showing up in the temple every day, and he's teaching and he's preaching, and the disciples are, are thrilled because they think this is the time, this is the moment Jesus is going to do, you know, the thing that Jesus does. And he shows up in, into the temple area, and they're hoping, you know, he's going to make friends because we need friends in Jerusalem, and then we're going to kick the Romans out. And Jesus shows up into the temple, but he doesn't do at all what they think. It's a matter of fact, that the religious leaders, they don't like Jesus because of his teaching. His teaching is so radical, and the stuff he's teaching is just so, so radical, and it's so strange. They begin to confront Jesus, and they come at him, and they try to trap Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He, like, he uses their own words against them, and he kind of condemns them with their words and humiliates them and sends them kind of running, and they're offended. And like, This is really weird. This isn't at all what we were expecting. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> where we left off last time, they went together and they celebrated the Passover meal together. They've been in there for a period of time, and now they're, they're enjoying the Passover meal. And Jesus said, this is the moment. This is when I'm about to do something. And they're thinking, the moment, right? He's going to tear open his rabbinic robes. There's going to be that M emblazoned on his chest for Messiah. And he's going to kick the Romans out and set us free and establish his kingdom. And we're going to be his rulers. Like, this is it. And Jesus did reveal his plan. But it wasn't at all what they expected. As a matter of fact, we read this last week, and in a few moments, we're going to go over this again and receive communion together. But he talks through his covenant, and he says this. Peter reminds us that while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, take this. This is my body. And I'm sure they kind of looked at the bread and thought, that's weird. This looks like bread. But you're Jesus, so we'll eat. And then in the same way, he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And I imagine at this point, he probably smiled and waited for a minute, and they said, oh, yeah, and by the way, guys, this is my blood, in which they all probably made a face. Like, dude, you're weird. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. A new covenant between God and all of mankind, to which the disciples must have thought, yeah, covenants are good, Jesus, but we have plenty. We don't need another covenant. We need a kingdom. We need a king. We thought you were here to do what you were going to do. We thought you were going, you, you keep talking about this new kingdom. Establish your kingdom. Kick the Romans out. Set us free. But like, what, what is this, Jesus? And everything they were hoping for and everything they were expecting was slowly passing out of view. There would be no kingdom. There, at least the way they thought. There would be no king, at least the way they thought. You know how the story goes, right? They finish up their meal, and they, they leave the upper room, and they head out into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And <clears throat> from a distance, while they're there praying, they see torches coming, they hear some noise, and Judas shows up with the temple guard, and they come to arrest Jesus. And Peter gets, like Peter does, he gets all violent, and he, he reacts, and he slices and a guy's ear off of Jesus. I mean, just these incredible stories. But as they show up to arrest Jesus, Peter tells us something that I'm sure when he's, he's telling Mark his story, Mark must have leaned in for a moment and stopped writing and are you sure you want to say this, Peter? Are you sure you want people to see what you're about to say? And Peter said, yes, because, God, this, this, this actually happened. 
You see, everyone needs to understand, I was no hero in this moment. There were no heroes that night. As a matter of fact, everybody who was there, everybody deserted him and fled. They ran for the hills. And Jesus is arrested. But of course they would do this, right? Because it's over. The king, the Messiah, has been arrested. And and the king, the Messiah, you can't arrest them. Well, then he must not be who he said he was. He's no king. There's no kingdom. It's over. Everything we hoped for, everything we uprooted our lives for, it's gone. The kingdom wasn't here. As a matter of fact, Peter would say it's almost as if God wasn't here either. But we're going to get into the story, and as we begin to uncover what happens to Jesus after this point, uh, we'll leave some, out, some of the graphic details out of it because we've hit these before. But <clears throat> make no mistake, as you're reading this, it's graphic. And, and th- th- there are details that if you're kind of this avid Bible reader, you're going to look at the Scripture and wonder, how did Peter know this? How, do, how did Mark know what, what happened here? These, these kind of private conversations that happened between the high priest and the chief priest and what happened in closed chambers. Like, Peter wasn't there. How does Peter know? And what's really interesting and amazing about this story is that later on, these Pharisees, some of these, these high priests, some of the very men that had Jesus arrested and wrongly tried and crucified, some of those very same men would later become followers of Jesus. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, and Acts are like the Acts of the Apostles after Jesus' death and resurrection. You know, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. In the book of Acts, some of these very same men that we're going to read about in just a few minutes, they show up again. Not as the captors, not as the persecutors or the executioners of Jesus, but as followers of Jesus, which, which leads me to wonder, it might lead you to wonder, what does it take for a guy to go from the executioner and the accuser and, and, and the, the, the arresting officer of Jesus to then become his follower? Like, what changed in their life? How does somebody go from, from wrongly accusing Jesus and persecuting him to becoming their follower? And my answer for that is don't miss next week. It's going to be a good one. Here's where our story picks up. They took Jesus to the high priest. This is all the high priests, all the officials, and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law. They all came together. And what's interesting is the the people that Peter includes here, these are people that that, that are typically like, like at war with each other. They don't always agree. They don't always see things eye to eye, but they found a common enemy in Jesus. And here's what we find. Peter, he followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards. These are the very same guards that he just witnessed arrest Jesus. He sat with them and warmed himself at the fire. Mark must have asked Peter, are you sure you want to go this route, Peter? Are you sure you want to keep going with this story? Peter would have said, yes, we have to. Because again, I was no hero. There were no heroes. We had deserted him. We had fled. And although I followed from a distance, I sat and warmed myself where it was safe. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is like the Supreme Court of the Judeans, of this Judean system. They were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. There was nothing they could do. There was nothing they could come up with. So so what did they do? They manufactured it. Peter tells us that many testified. Many people came and they falsely testified against Jesus, but their statements didn't line up. Nothing would agree. Nothing, nothing kind of worked together. There was nothing they could do to convict Jesus of death. 
So the high priest is now getting angry. He's, he's frustrated because the stories aren't lining up. And he has a will. He has an agenda here. It's to, to end Jesus, to end this movement. So things would get back to normal and people would come down and, and, and respect us because we're the respectable people, right? This is, these are the people that when they walked through town, like when they walked through villages, people parted ways. These were people of utmost respect. And they're trying to fabricate this story against Jesus. So he's getting so angry at this point. There's emotion in this, and I won't scream because when I scream, it tends to scare you. But, but you can imagine. He's frustrated. And it's almost like I imagine he gets right in Jesus' face, maybe even grabs him by the cloak, and he looks at him. He says, are you going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? Don't you have anything to say? Like, give me something. And I love this. And I think this is what ticked them off even further. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And I think that's what helped build this and escalate this situation even further. Now they're even more furious. Who are you to disrespect me? Do you know who I am? And Jesus doesn't say a word. Again, the high priest looked at Jesus and shouted again. They asked him one more time, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? And Jesus says something, and his answer to this question is so significant. This answer to this, to this question would dictate his future. As a matter of fact, I think Peter would tell us, the way Jesus would answer this question impacts my future. It impacts your future. It impacts Peter's future. How Jesus answers this, what he says next, the words he says are so key and so vital and so important to who he is and what would happen with this movement he started. Are you the Messiah? Are you the blessed one? And finally, Jesus answers. And with his own words, he condemns himself. And he says this, I am. And with that, he is condemned to death. The high priest at this point tore his clothes in frustration and anger, showing his emotion. Do we need any more evidence? Like, why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard this. You've heard his blasphemy. You've heard him say all, all these things. So what do you think? What is your response? And the men who typically couldn't work together and couldn't see eye to eye in Jesus found a common enemy. And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And some, some began to spit just as Jesus kind of prophesied just a, a few days before. You remember this, on their way down to Jerusalem the final time, he had warned his disciples two times before this about what would happen to him, the Son of Man, when they get into Jerusalem. And on that final time, he got very specific and very graphic. They would spit him and they would beat him and everything he prophesied was about to come true. Surely, they began to spit at him. They blindfolded him and they struck him with their fists, these angry fists. They had all this pent-up rage. They had all this pent-up anger. Who was this man, Jesus, to mock them with their own words? All of this, this frustration, all of this rage, all of this humiliation was now poured out on Jesus with their fists. And they would strike him. And they said, prophesy. And the guards, they took him aside. And they beat him even further. And, and, and we kind of brushed by that. But, but this was, I, I need you to understand the emotion and the weight of this. This wasn't like, they hit him, and they moved on. This happened for, for minutes, maybe a half hour, maybe an hour. And all of their anger and all of the, these, these men who were respectable took turns 
and ordered their guards and beat an innocent man. And the story's about to shift, and Mark knows that. And I imagine one more time he leans in, Peter, are you sure you want to go this far with the story? Peter, are, are you sure you, you want to say what you're about to say? Because, Peter, we have no idea how many people are going to read this account. We have no idea how many people are, are, are like, this could go far, this could go wide. We have no idea who's going to read it. And what they, what they read next, what you're about to get into, Peter, I've heard this before. I've been with you for, for years. You've said this story for over 30 years. I, I know where you're going. And if you go there, Peter might, Peter, people might look at you differently. And I imagine Peter kind of sat back and he said, yes, I know. And although it's humiliating, and although it's shameful, and although it's painful, people need to know because they need to know that the grace and the mercy that I received is the grace and the mercy of God as given to us through Jesus. And it wasn't just for me. It's for you and for you and for you and for anybody who would receive it. So let's jump in, Mark. There's Jesus being beaten while I sit in the courtyard warming myself by the fire. And one of the, the servant girls of the high priest, she comes by and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him closely and kind of leaned in. And I imagine at this point, she probably said it even softly. She just looked at Peter with almost this, this question. Aren't you one of them? You're also, you, you were also with the Nazarene Jesus, weren't you, she said. And Peter said, but I, I denied it. Of course, I'm not going to admit to that. Peter told Mark, and, and then I, I kind of stepped away from the fire because I didn't want my face to be seen. I'm hoping the, the, the shade and the darkness would disguise myself so people couldn't see me. But, but she wouldn't give up. She wouldn't relent. She followed me away from the fire a little further. And this time she wasn't whispering. This time she was asking louder so people could hear her. She said again, and she said this to all those who were standing around the, the fire, this fellow's one of them. And again, Peter said, no, I, I denied it again. This time a little more strongly. I don't know what you're talking about. But now everyone sitting around the fire is staring at Peter. And they're all beginning to recognize. And they all now begin to make this accusation against Peter. Surely you are one of them. We know it's you. You have an accent. For you're a Galilean. And now Peter's all worked up. And he tells Mark, I don't know why, but I, just, I began to call down curses. Or I began to curse at them all. And I swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And in that moment... The rooster crowed. And Peter had a flash to that meal with Jesus when Peter, when Jesus would remind him one more time, Peter, you will deny me. And everything Jesus said came to pass. And this rough and tough fisherman, this, this guy who, who was the leader of the pack, he was type A and he was strong and he had no problem facing the enemy and swinging a sword when they came to arrest Jesus. This rough man, Peter would tell Mark, he broke down and he wept. And Peter would say, that was the moment. That was the moment in my life that I wish I could go back, that I wish I could unlive, that I wish I, I, I could redo. And all those other moments, all those other times where I messed up or my temper got the better of me or, or whatever it might be, all of those are, are funny anecdotes that we can go back to, but this this I wish I could undo. 
And if you're sitting here or you're listening at home and there, there are moments in your life that you wish you could go back and redo, you need to know this. Peter knows what you're feeling. He knows the brokenness and he knows the overwhelming emotion and the sadness and the shame and the pain. And there is a place, he would say, that you could go. A place that's safe. A place where there's grace, a place where there's mercy. The story continues. Jesus was taken to Pilate. The religious leaders, they wanted to execute Jesus, but they didn't have the authority. They couldn't just execute him on their own. They needed Pilate's permission. And, and, and they hated having to go to Pilate to ask Pilate for a favor, but Pilate loved it. He loved kind of rubbing their noses in the fact that they weren't free and they needed him. So they come to Pilate one more time to, to make accusations against Jesus. The chief priests, they accuse Jesus of many things before Pilate. So Pilate turns to Jesus and asks him, aren't you going to defend yourself? And Jesus, with all of his character, with all of his calm, with all of his patience, already being beaten, already being spit on and humiliated, Jesus made no reply. But this amazed Pilate. You see, this was unusual for Pilate because this is the point in somebody's story where typically they would throw themselves on their knees at the feet of Pilate and beg for mercy. They would beg for mercy and, and not beg to be set free. That's a foregone conclusion at this point. If you're here, something's happening. But they would beg for mercy as in a quick death. Pilate, just end it quickly for me. Just, 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 just let it be over. Don't, don't do what I know you have the ability to do. But there's Jesus. Calm. Not saying a word. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He knew there, there, was, there was nothing that they, could, that they could hold against Jesus. There was no evidence they could, they could kind of work up against Jesus to convict him of death. They knew that. But he needed to appease the crowd. So instead of having Jesus executed, he has Jesus flogged. And we've gone into great detail on what this is, so I'm not going to cover that again today. But he has Jesus flogged, and here's his thought. If we have him flogged and he comes back, he might die from his wounds anyway, which is, okay, you're satisfied. But if he's not dead, maybe they'll be satisfied when they see this, this broken, beaten, bloody, battered man. So he sends Jesus off, and he has him flogged. and They bring Jesus back, and they return him. And at this point, he's, he's almost unrecognizable. As a matter of fact, in one of the Gospels, it says his own mother wouldn't even recognize him. And they throw him before Pilate, and Pilate throws him before his accusers one more time. They weren't done. Pilate says, all right then, well, what do you want me to do? What shall I do with this one that you call king of the Jews? And this is a little dig at them because they didn't consider him king of the Jews. And he's just it's adding insult to injury one more time. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, they had a moment to stir up the crowd while Jesus was being beaten. So Pilate asks the question, what shall I do then? And the crowd responds, viscerally, angrily, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate gave Jesus over to the captors. And the soldiers, they led Jesus away. And they called together a whole company of soldiers. But these soldiers, these weren't the Roman legions. These weren't Roman citizens. These weren't your typical Roman soldiers. History tells us that, that these soldiers, these were, these were kind of Roman auxiliaries, they call them. They were, they were soldiers. They were actually citizens from the surrounding nations of, of this location. These were people who, who were brought in to be soldiers for Pilate, and they hated the Jews. They hated the Judeans. So the thought of a Judean king to them, it was disgusting. It was horrifying. 
So all of this violence, all of this anger that's poured out on Jesus, it's easy now to, to see why. These are men who hated Jews, and in particular, hated anyone who would declare himself king of the Jews. They would take a purple robe and they would put it on him. they twist together a crown of thorns and they'd set it on his head. And then they'd begin to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again, they struck him on the head with a staff. They spit on him some more. And when they had finally finished, right, when they had finally kind of wrapped things up, when they had mocked him enough, they took the purple robe off him and they put his own clothes back on his broken, bloody, battered body. And they brought Jesus to a hill, to the place they called Golgotha. And then this is a simple line of text that to first century men and women meant so much. But to us, we just kind of gloss over because it's part of the story. And they crucified him. You see, we brush by that, but to first century audiences, they knew what crucifixion was. They had witnessed crucifixion. Chances are they had already lost somebody they knew or somebody they loved to a crucifixion. They smelled what a crucifixion was. They heard the cries and the screams of a crucifixion. You see, for modern readers, we kind of, we kind of uh, um, glamorize it a little bit. We kind of romanticize it a little bit. We kind of brush by it like, like well, it's something sweet to be remembered. But, but to them, this was visceral, and this was graphic, and this was violent, and this was the worst thing that could happen to a man. But one thing we know is sure of this, that in that moment when God would be most glorified, we would have been most horrified. That in that moment where our Savior, the Messiah, the rabbi, an innocent man hung on a cross, where God was most glorified, we would have turned our heads in shame and looked away. But there hung our Savior. An innocent man condemned to die. Hanging on a cross. You would think it would be done, but the crowd wasn't done with him yet. They shout out to him as he's hanging on the cross in all of his shame and all of his humiliation. So you who are going to rebuild or destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, so you who think you can do this, come down from the cross and save yourself. But he didn't. They retort back, he could save others, but he can't even save himself. And looking back, Peter understood some significance of this because hindsight's amazing. You see, Jesus', Jesus des- desire to, to hang there and not save himself was profound. It was precisely why he, he didn't why he couldn't save himself. Let, let, let me say it this way: that if Jesus had tried to save himself, if Jesus had saved himself, he wouldn't have saved others. If on that day, Jesus had decided to save himself, he wouldn't have been able to save me or you if he had saved himself. He wouldn't have been able to save you, or you, or you. And Peter was familiar with this because Peter hid and denied to save himself. But Jesus hung and died to save you. They still weren't done. Let this Messiah, this false Messiah, they would say, the King of the Jews, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. 
And they had no idea how significant those last three words were. See and believe. And Peter's thinking now, writing this years later after telling the story so many times, see and believe. You see, that's exactly, he would say, what happened to me. Because what I saw in two days from this moment is what caused me to believe in 30 years from now, facing all of the trials and, and all of the pain and all of the suffering and watching my friends die and be executed. I believed because of what I will see two days from this moment. And as Peter wraps up his story, he says this, this very man who, who at one point controlled nature, the wind and the waves, they obeyed him. He now <clears throat> became a victim to it. At noon, darkness came over the whole land. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. And he asks a question that's a really difficult question. And at this point, nobody had the words to answer. He says, my God, my God. Why? Why have you forsaken me? No one can answer. But I imagine as Peter's telling this story to Mark, his final time sitting in Rome, with his life shortly, shortly coming to an end, although he has no idea, I imagine this final time he may have looked back and smiled and he said, Mark, I know why. I know why God forsook the Son. I know why Jesus felt that on the cross. As a matter of fact, years before he would dictate this, this whole account to Mark, he wrote another letter to Christians. And in this letter, he says this. He himself, Jesus, he bore our sins and his body on the cross. That's why God had to look away. Because he had placed all of your sins and my sins on Jesus at the cross. So Jesus, hanging there in all of the shame and all of the humiliation, now feels forsaken by his own father. Peter say it, it was kind of simple. The father had to withdraw from the son so that the father could draw near to us. The father had to forsake the son so that he could later accept us. so that we would never be far. But in that moment, nobody knew. Peter says with a loud cry, my friend, my rabbi, my teacher, he breathed his last breath and died. And then for another moment, I imagine he almost smiles again. And Mark, I imagine, what are you smiling at, Peter? This is the worst part of the story. Peter said, yeah, but something amazing happened at that very moment. Something that we wouldn't know till later, but at the very moment, Jesus breathed his last breath and died. God gave us almost this, this divine illustration, almost this, this divine van, uh, vandalism. <clears throat> Over in the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, not from the bottom to the top as if people would do it, from the top to the bottom. And, and we don't know which, which curtain it is. In, in the temple, there's two curtains. There's one that the public can see, and there's one between the Holy of Holies. We're not sure, but it, it doesn't matter because the illustration is the same. All of this signifies exactly what Jesus said. The old way, the old system, it's dead. 
It's been ripped into by the very person who authored it. The new has come, and the new is better. And it's better than Moses. It's better than the prophets. It's better than anything that was. The new is here. The new kingdom, the new creation, the new covenant that I established. You remember the covenant that Jesus talked about when, uh, at the meal with the Passover with his disciples, with the blood and the bread. He said, I've ratified that covenant. With my blood, it's sealed, and it's for everybody. The covenant between God and, hu- and the human race was officially and finally ratified. No longer did we need an old system of, uh, of sacrifices and atonement. We have a new system where we've been made right, where we've been justified. Jesus said, the old has come in my death, in my passing, and the new is for you. Will you receive it? See, everybody's been invited to be a part of this. Peter would say, even me, even me who didn't deserve it, even me who who denied my king and my friend, who sat by a fire and warmed himself as he was beaten to death, even I am invited to be a part of it. Even I got what I didn't deserve. You see, what's amazing, we're going to go back to this verse that Peter, Peter wrote. What's amazing this is that Peter doesn't leave himself out. He doesn't, read this again. He says, he himself bore, not your sins, he himself bore our sins. My sin is included. Because I know what it's like to carry around the shame. And I know what it's like to carry around the pain. And I know what it's like to have a moment I wish I could go back and unlive and redo. But I don't have to. You are never far. Peter would say, you are never far because God has drawn close to you. So what will you do? What will you do with the news that you've heard? We're going to pick up our story there next week, Easter Sunday. Don't miss it. But before we leave this morning, I want to give anyone here an opportunity, anybody who's joining us online, an opportunity to receive the same gift that Peter received, forgiveness and restoration for all of his sins, for all of his shame, for all of, his, all of the pain that he'd been carrying around. He said, finally, at the end, I realized there was a safe place for me to bring it and to leave it and to walk away a new person. And it was at the cross of my Savior, Jesus. So if that's you this morning, I'm going to ask you to say a simple prayer with me. We're going to put the prayer up on screen so you can read it with me. But here's what I want you to do. Even if you're sitting at home, just for a moment, I'm going to ask you to to take a step of faith. To repent and believe the good news. So if that's you, I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye closed. This isn't a spectacle. We're not here to embarrass you. I'm just going to ask you to say these words with me, to mean them from your heart. 
to repent. That means to, to give up what was and to turn in a different direction, to give up your sin because Jesus has already forgiven you for your sins. You just need to receive the forgiveness, to repent and leave your sins at the cross and follow Jesus into something brand new. If that's you, will you say this with me? Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I ask you, God, to forgive me of my sins. God, just like, just like Peter, Jesus bore my sins on that bloody cross. God, today I place my faith in him as my Savior and as my Lord. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.